Hey folks, welcome to episode 11 of the Letterpress Digest podcast. In this episode, I talked to Paul Moxon. He is well known for his work on Vandercook printing presses, and he runs the Vander blog, uh, which is at vandercookpress.info on the web. Uh, but he's also very well steeped in book arts and printing history, and we spent a lot of our time talking about that. Uh, I'm actually very naive when it comes to book arts and the interaction with letterpress printing, and so he spends some time helping me understand that dynamic. Uh, it's a fascinating and interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy. Hey folks, uh, thanks for joining us. I am super excited to welcome Paul Moxon to the podcast. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Paul, you kind of are known to be the Vandercook guy, um, but I kind of want to know how you got started in letterpress to begin with. Uh, well, when I uh, was in college, uh, there was a uh, letterpress pile, I guess, if you will, equipment and type cabinets uh, up against uh, a corner of this printmaking studio. And it was not, had not been used for about maybe 10 years or so. And uh, I was already interested in graphics, doing um, paste up with phototype and uh, in some printmaking. And I, I just wanted to um, see if I could play with this stuff. And so I was, I had permission to sort of set up a corner, get it organized and started um, setting type and learned how to print. There was an SP 15 there. Um, I, I didn't have any instruction, but I found a copy of general printing and uh, in the library. And uh, that was my, um, my introduction to all this. Wow, so you you basically took the the sort of the textbook general printing and you had a press and you just went to town. Yes, I mean I had already had some experience with typography and layout and okay. um of course this was very different because I'm manipulating uh, uh you know three-dimensional objects, uh, you know, right. pieces of type and, and furniture and all the accoutrement. Uh but I was a Lego kid. So just piecing things together. Yeah, that's very cool. Well, I mean, what led you down the, the Vandercook route? I guess you started with that. Oh, one. well, it was the first press I, it was the first press I had access to. And um, you know, a very simple machine. And uh, like I said, uh I could see that it had a handle and, and I could turn it from one end to the other. And then of course as soon as I started uh messing around with stuff other people came out of the woodwork and I met a librarian who said, Oh, I have one of these in my living room. And, um, you know, start slowly started getting connected to other people. And also I read, um, all of the old trade literature and, um, books on printing and typography and really, really started, um, kind of solidifying my knowledge that way. It wasn't until later that I started meeting other printers but as far as Vandercook goes, uh, 
sometime later, um, another 10 years or so, I went to uh, University of Alabama uh, Book Arts program, and I I uh, uh, had access to the press, several presses there, and they were in pretty good shape. And then um, when I went to uh, New York to teach at the Center for Book Arts, um, for the first time I was still in the program. And then uh, I saw that the presses were a little rougher, and so I developed the curriculum for the uh, maintenance class. I should say that um, several years prior, I took a Vandercook maintenance class from a man named Gene Wendersky, who used to work for Vandercook and Vandersons, the um, uh, successor company. And uh, he was teaching a maintenance class at the Oregon College of Arts and Crafts. So it was a two-day workshop. Essentially, it was just him doing maintenance and letting us watch. Uh, we took notes and photos, and he didn't really have a curriculum. He was just making some repairs. Uh, it was Barbara Tettenbaum who brought him in to um, uh, uh, work on, service the presses and uh, turn it into a workshop. I believe he had done that a couple other places around the country, but it wasn't really, it were sort of one-off events. It wasn't really his main focus, you know, doing repair. He had been like a, a manager for Vanderson's. And he has since sort of um, disappeared. And at this point, he may have passed away. Wow. So you, you kind of just, so you, you learned, I guess, from original employees, and then you started sort of your own curriculum. Well, I, w- I would have to say, yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I, I took that workshop, and this was in the mid-90s, and, uh, and that, I didn't really have any much opportunity to put it into practice. Although I, did, I was printing the whole time and had access to various presses, and, but there really wasn't much need to do repairs on the presses I had access to. And it really wasn't until, uh, I'd say, early 2000s when I was in New York that I started putting it into practice. Uh, in actual maintenance and um, uh, developed this curriculum and it was, uh, you know, cleaning and oiling. And that's still essentially the basis of it. Um, But, you know, recognizing which springs and screws need to be replaced or bushings and so forth. A lot of times it's just really small uh, um, items that are critical to the performance of the presses. Right, right, right. Yeah. But as time as time as time gone on, I have um, uh, found my uh, the need to make more um, substantial um, repairs. Right. Yeah. And so it's been it's been a learning process, uh, slowly becoming learning more about uh, mechanics over time. Yeah, that's and so now I'm pretty comfortable with you know machining operations and. Right. That's an interesting point because, you know, you kind of, I guess you, you started in um, book arts, I guess, and, and sort of design, and now you're you're part mechanic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I tell people that they, uh, they really do need to be their own expert. And that was the original uh, impetus, the original emphasis of, um, of my classes uh, to make people comfortable with that. Cause a lot of times I'll get someone who's an accomplished artist, but they think of themselves as being mechanically inept. I said, well, it's really simple. Uh, you know, cleaning and oiling, uh, turning the screws, um, you know, tightening things. And so when I get someone in the class and they are real hesitant, uh, I usually 
make them do most of the repairs. Yeah, I guess. And, and so, and I just direct, I just direct them. But I right. tell people I'm not a real mechanic and I'm a show and tell kid. And I think <laughs> it, it helps them. So, but I can speak the language of, of book artists as well as um, increasingly the language of, um, of repair people, machinists. Right. Well, you know, that's something I want to touch on with you. Can you, can you talk to me about book arts? I mean, can you help? So I, I am a bit uneducated in this realm. I don't have an arts background or even sort of a um, design background. But, you know, book art seems to be somewhat um, synonymous with letterpress or at least corollary to letterpress. And so I, I'm curious, can you help me sort of understand the, the background of book arts and how that uh, relates to letterpress? Okay, well, um, letterpress uh, was a you know, means of disseminating information, right? I mean, from the very beginning. And uh, it sort of um, found its way as a, uh, well, it was a trade, became a trade, and uh, which touched on publishing, but also uh, you know, other kinds of more commercial um, products, uh, or I should say, you know, um, posters and timetables, you know, more ephemeral stuff. Right. And uh, book book arts, uh, the history of it, you know, it was was trying to find the the uh, the refined uh, higher standards of the work. I mean, there was com- there's high commercial standards to to be sure, but uh, it's a more idiosyncratic way of publishing and and doing and not trying to reach a mass audience. Um, first of all, because you have a usually a smaller quantity produced, but uh, you can use um, materials that aren't commercially um, viable. Um, so you can source materials that from other things that are non-standard. Lots of um, book arts will have uh, um, found objects and uh, or handmade papers, things like that, that aren't that no one else may have. Uh, same way with the text. Right. The texts are often, you know, per- personal, but they can be. It's a big tent because there's fine press, and then there's uh, book arts and artist books. Is yet another sort of um, uh, branch, if you will, of it, and even more um, uh, personal in some ways. Um, and of course, you know, now we're seeing a lot of more uh, political. Uh, uh, statements in uh, book form, but uh, it's, it really is more about uh, the the publisher, the uh, the maker uh, taking control of the means of production, um, like like yourself having a, having a press and then choosing everything, and then also uh, choosing all the materials, but then also um, having your own um, making your own decisions about about uh, a distribution of it. Some you may sell, some may, you may give away or trade for other uh, uh, pieces of art or anything, really. Wow, yeah, that's really fascinating. Do So, in, in I guess, traditionally, would a book artist print a book of something they had written themselves? Or would sort of they would, would they execute well, sure, on... Sure something that someone else had written or like a poem or something of that nature. All of the above. All of I the mean, above. I'm also a publisher and I will, um, 
seek out um, texts. Uh, texts will come to me, and I will make the choice about you know the ones that I that that um, appeal to me. And so, as a publisher, my goal is just is very modest that way. I'm entertaining myself, if you will. And sometimes I will commission art, and sometimes I will cobble something together myself. Um, but but that's that's really what it is. It's it's really a DIY thing. It's it's really doing it for yourself. But the history. Uh, which I sort of um, uh, danced around, you know, goes back um, quite some time. Uh, and if you have the uh, the ability to uh, gather some materials together, uh, equipment and time, um, and a profit is not important to you, well, then certainly uh, you can do whatever you wish. Uh, and then, but it's not book arts uh, per se, it's yourself published. But for some people, uh, it was important to get their word out, and uh, their the only way they could do that was by you know taking the uh, means of production in their own hands. Uh, you know, famous examples like Whitman doing uh, Leaves of Grass, uh, Anais Nin doing you know her her uh, works, um, and many many other examples. You uh, and then sometimes they're just doing their own. Um, projects and other times they're they're working with some people that they admire um you know that private press movement in 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 britain for example right yeah so you so you mentioned you do uh some of this yourself you're you're a publisher is that uh under your sort of fame or shame press is that right yes and that's my imprint and that was the original uh idea for me to to do something with uh, these materials, with uh, type and paper and you know the press, uh, when I was in college, because I was already interested in publishing poetry and uh, working with, and I had already done that, uh, working like with a college newspaper and a literary magazine, and so um, <clears throat> uh, doing treatments of other people's work, you know, the layout, the design, and all that was more important to me than doing my own writing at that time. And of course now it's kind of full circle. I'm coming back and doing my own writing again now. <laughs> That's usually how it works, right? Um, yeah. What about uh, broadsides? So you mentioned that on your Famer Shame mm-hmm. Press website. You, you do a lot of the, mm-hmm. the book arts, but also broadsides. What exactly is that? Well, uh, a broadside is a, uh, you could argue, is a historical term uh, to post uh, a text for public consumption, like uh, in a public place. Um, you know, one of the most famous broadsides is the Declaration of Independence. You know, so if you wanted people to know uh, this uh, a manifesto, they would post it in a public place. Um, we use the broad- term broadsides now to be a uh, a text-based poster, you know, something that is where the text is more important than, say, graphics. Um, that is the primary purpose of the uh, um, production. And certainly they can have illustrations, and maybe even uh, the illustrations can be on equal footing with the text. Um, for me, though, it's usually um, the text is, is primary, and uh, illustrations will 
serve to uh, underscore um, the message. Right. Yeah. That's that's fascinating. I, I I had always, I guess, in my mind, equated broadsides to a, a different word for posters. But I but I think it. I think that your description is is actually they're they're different, right? I mean, having the the text be more well, of a focal point. Yeah, it's not hard and right. It's not hard and fast because obviously, sure. um, you know, uh, wood type posters um, can they be broadsides? I, I suppose yes. Um, but usually, when someone uh, who is informed about these things um, hears the term broadside, they're off. They're they're thinking. Uh, usually about a longer text, um, you know, not necessarily the Declaration of Independence, but you know, <laughs> let's say a, a poem, for example. Whereas sure. a poster will often have much fewer words, right? You know, um, like a wood, like a wood type poster. Right. Yeah. Well, so it's 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 in the eye of the beholder, I think, and, and to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. As is a, a lot of uh, you know, I think uh, letterpress these days, but. So did that kind of, did your background in book arts and Famer Shane Press, did that kind of lead you to the American Printing History Association? Yeah, well, from the earliest, um, the, the first readings I was doing about all of this, um, history was infused in that. Not just, uh, I mean, there's history uh, to, to a small degree in um, general printing, which is now in some ways a historical document itself because it it um uh, illustrates um it was it was, it was a uh, textbook for students who were um, pursuing uh, printing as a trade so and and which is a different way than how we do it today even for those people who are doing it strictly in a commercial um way right um but but uh i was also reading um about the practitioners of um you know, uh, 50, 75, a hundred years ago. And then, and then going farther back to the, to the earliest practitioners. So, uh, like many things, you know, one, one, um, one book, uh, uh leads to another, um, in that uh, vein. Yeah, I can imagine. So now you are the website editor, right? Of the APHA, um, organization. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I started out as the, um, uh, printed newsletter editor, and um, or I should say designer, and then uh, working with an editor, and then I became editor. And uh, for a little while, it was for in its last um, uh, iteration, it was a uh, PDF, and now it is all um, now it is the website. Yeah, the website. I enjoy that work because um, I think of book arts as a big tent, like I, I said earlier. Um, you know, it encompasses for me. It encompasses uh, people working in the fine press uh, tradition, and uh, as well as, on the other hand, experimental printers, uh, designers, um, and uh, and then of course librarians and um, book collectors and book dealers, and as well as the other allied arts, calligraphy, papermaking, so forth. And I've done just a little bit of everything. I've uh, some of it better than others papermaking, bookbinding, you know, um, even calligraphy. And uh, the printing has been, and publishing has been more of my focus. And then, of course, now uh, this whole Vandercook uh, repair thing has really kind of taken over. But I've always thought of um, the book arts as being the nexus of my interest in art, literature, history, technology, design, so forth. 
Wow, yeah, it really is a, a, a very interesting culmination of sort of uh, of the arts, but also of history and even technology. You know, it, it seems like a very, yeah. you almost have to have a very diverse set of interests to, to be kind of uh, experienced in that field almost, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, but like I said, you know, they've all tied in together neatly for me because I might be um, uh, needing to contemplate um, a piece of uh, machinery, uh, for example, a screw. And that will lead to finding out that, that there's um, that the history of screws, you know, it's an evolutionary process, <laughs> um, if you will. Um, yeah. You know, the, the screw threads need to be standardized over time. And, you know, like so many other um, things, the standards, uh, you know, don't develop overnight. And then, and then uh, you may have a, uh, a, a manufacturing process that has evolved over a very long period of time, and they need to, need to be uh, standardized. And that has its own um, pangs, if you will. Uh, it's, it's like um, the, the standard for um, metal type, you know, it wasn't developed until, you know, the, you know what is it, 1892? Um, before that, manufacturers were going their own way, doing their own things. So if you had 19th century type from t two different foundries, they may not uh, work well together. Really? So, you know, so different, um, different heights of paper uh, and even the point sizes, you know, um, uh, the rational point sizes, if you want to call it that, that we use today um, only goes back to the 1890s, whereas uh, before that you had your type was given, uh, type sizes were given names. And, uh, you know, uh, like um, uh, primer and um, double pica and so forth, even and then small ones like diamond and pearl. Um, so it was a little more confusing. And so they got together and they said, OK, we have to standardize. But same thing, like I said, with screws. And so um, I find that I find that fascinating, the, um, people going their own way and then coming together to try to, you know, bridge those differences. Right. Well, I'm I'm fascinated. I had no idea that the sort of standard type high, the point nine one eight, I'm assuming, right, was o is only yeah, dates I, back to eighteen mm. nineties. Yeah, um, uh, and that was the um, well, that, that wasn't the first attempt. There were attempts in uh, in France before that. Uh, you know, we don't have time to get into the history of uh, of that type manufacturing, but. You know, that's one of the great, another great thing about all this book arts, if you will want to call it that, is that um, there is a substantial body of literature um, on every aspect of, um, of bookmaking and, and uh, papermaking and calligraphy. There's a, there's a, a fully uh, developed history in all of that. And, and we are continuing, though, to find new takes on it. Uh, uh, things that were sort of overlooked, if you will. But in the main, we, we pretty much covered the development of the history uh, of its uh, of this technology. Um, so like say for printing, you know, uh, we know when it started, we know who started it, <laughs> and we know who um, refined it and who were the successful practitioners uh, along the way, now 550 years hence. 
Right. Well, I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I want to test my knowledge here by who started it. We're, we're talking about Gutenberg, right? Right. And but, uh, you know, the scholars and I, I don't think of myself as a scholar at all, but just as a uh, close student of this, you know, he some people would say that his um, invention was the um, was the adjustable mold to make type because the printing press. Um, there was printing happening before him, and uh, it was from from other things things other than lead. And you know, w- uh, books were entire pages carved out of um, of a wood block, like like a wood print, if you will, wood cut. Right, right. Um, but a, but the press was also used for other things before that, for you know, cheese and wine and so forth. And so that the screw, the wooden screw on there is one of those um, simple machines, you know, the six simple machines that right. um, uh, had, you know, way predated it. He, Gutenberg, other people have argued, was one of those guys who just saw aspects and put it together, packaged it right. Sort of like, um, I don't know, Steve Jobs or our own uh, Harold Kyle. You know, you, f- you find those elements and you um, find a good way to... Um, get them to market <laughs> right yeah that makes sense i mean i i do know, i i had uh read briefly that i know printing sort of the printing presses <laughs> was happening in in other parts of the world too right i, I think you know in, like in china maybe yeah yes right yeah. yes uh, uh china and korea um so but again in uh at the time of gutenberg though um europe was a little more of a backwater for um, these technologies of just, you know, disseminating information. You know, China had paper for um, what? A, they, they had paper for, um, you know, hundreds of years uh, before it showed up in Spain. And so that's also the, it's kind of the history of, you know, of migration of that, in, of, um, that technology. It took a long time to get from China through, through, um, uh, you know, South Asia into the Middle East, and then over to uh, um, and over to Europe. Wow, that's fascinating. We could, I feel like, we could go down an entire history lesson here. Yeah, <laughs> just the the printed world. I, you know, <laughs> I, I often I often refer to the, you know, there's so many rabbit holes to go down, and so that goes back to why I'm interested in APHA. Is um, you know, it puts me in contact with people who um, have. Um, studied these these individual uh, um, warrens, if you will, right. um, of, of information, you know, calligraphy and paper and so forth. Right. They've been chasing but a I lot found of my niche, <laughs> I, Yes. And I found my niche in uh, uh, letterpress and then uh, inside of that, uh, Vandercook. And so um, I do tell students, um, like at the University of Alabama, when I returned, you know, I said, Find your, you know, find a hook, you know, mm-hmm. be known for something uh, that is, if you want to, you know, make this your primary um, living, um, it's not the easiest living, of course, but um, if you can be, you know, uh, known for, I don't know, a binding style or a printing style or something like that. Um, you can, can mine that. Now, this was never really my plan. It just kind of accidentally happened because I was following my own interests. And it's like going back to teaching at the Center for Book Arts. 
you know, my first um, handouts were like uh, just a just a list, uh, you know, three or four page lists of um, of parts and procedures, and it was based on my knowledge at the time. And slowly, it grew into um, a larger and larger handout. And um, there's a point I'm trying to trim it down, but it usually ends up being about forty pages. <laughs> And is that just um, is that your book then? And, and that's my, <laughs> well, it's it's the um, the maintenance section of my book. Okay. And um, you know, I've taught this workshop now close to I think about 100. I have to count them up again, but 130 times. And I probably revised it at least uh, I don't know 150, 160 times probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the maintenance section of the handout. I leave out the history. Uh, it's just a bit too much, as well as, you know, there's only so much people can absorb in a two-day workshop. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, so t- so tell me about uh, the, sort of the moment you decided that y- your interest in Vandercooks was a bit more than just a or sort of a pet hobby, and you created the website. Oh, well, um, let's see here. So um, I didn't start the website initially. Um, there was another gentleman, his name was, um, Mark Wilden, and he was a Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, um, uh, uh, computer programmer. And he was, got interested in, um, printing. And, um, there was a, a gentleman who named Hal Stern. He, he passed away. He used to own NA Graphics before the current owner, Fritz Klinky. Um, and he had started a, making notes about uh, Vandercook. And um, he wrote a, a little uh, brief history that was printed in uh, the printer um, newspaper um, a few years back. And I've been in, I got in contact with him. And um, at this point, I'm doing the maintenance stuff and starting to gather more and more information on the history of um of the Vandercook company and um, proof presses in general. And um, this guy, Hal, was was in contact with Mark. And then Mark started a very rudimentary um, site with no design to it at all. His, his theory was to just um, let the user have their own experience. So it was pretty raw. And so whatever they would get on the other end, that's how it would look. Mm-hmm. and he didn't, he didn't have any graphics, but I was an early contributor to it. He did that for about two years, and uh, then I took it over, and then I branded it uh, with a, um, its own uh, URL, its own domain, and um, started putting graphics, and you know, it was an opportunity for me to do some design as well, and uh, do a whole layout, and then I... Um, but I started the... Um, I started the census and I started the, um, uh, the, the forum, if you were the blog part of it. Um, and I developed a lot of the other pages where pretty much Mark had, um, a, a timeline and it, and an index of, um, of presses. So there's pretty, I would say for the most part about two pages or, uh, which now I would call them pages that he had, um, started with and and a lot of the, his information he got from or i would say almost all of his information uh came from hal stern so hal stern is really kind of a pioneer 
in uh, Vanderbilt history stuff. Not the first one. Not the. I mean, not the only one. Um, uh, Fred Williams wrote a, a nice article about 1990, I think it was, in um, his uh, little quarterly called um, Type and Press. And um, I have to say, Type and Press was one of the first contemporary, uh, uh, at the time, um, journals, if you will. Um, but it was really geared to hobbyist letterpress printers who were using handset type. And uh, you can read all the Type and Press through um, uh, the APA website. They have they have ownership of those copyright of those um, um, newsletters now. Wow. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about the census. How many <clears throat> Vander Cooks do you have listed now? Well, there's um, over twenty two hundred, and um, by my parsing, Vander Cook made about ninety different models. And some of those were in production for a long period of time and some very short. Some were probably prototypes and were marketed briefly. Um, it is curious about which ones were heavily advertised. Uh, doesn't mean there are necessarily that many of them out there today. Like the 317, for example. There's not many of them out there, but um, uh, in the 30s, they were uh, heavily promoted in the trade journals. Um, out of these 90 different models, there are 40-some uh, listed in the census. And then out of that, I've personally seen 25 models. Um, now, most people, as they go around to schools and uh, so forth, they're, they're probably going to see well, maybe 8 to 10 models um, in the course of their um, career, if you will. Because uh, some of these... Um, uh, um, for uh, models, like I said, there might be only a single instance, some, especially some of the earlier ones. Right. Uh, but even some of the later ones. For example, I own a number four, and it was in production for 25 years. And so there are a lot of them out there. You're going to run into a four just uh, just uh, going to, you know, a couple of the book art centers. I mean, each one of the book art centers, I can think of, uh, in, you know, New York, San Francisco, and um, uh, Minneapolis, they all have a number four. Um, yeah, it was like I said, production for 25 years. And then there's some others like the 1521, uh, was only in production for like 18 months, but there's still about, um, 20 of them out there. Wow. What, what now, out of these 22, uh, go ahead. Uh, what, what I was just gonna ask, what percentage do you think, uh, of the Vandercooks do you have on your census compared to, I, I guess, how many they produced writ large? Uh, well, this is you know some of the stuff that I um, put have in my book and on the website. But um, by Vandercook says they made thirty thousand presses, and but I think that also includes some uh, some of the serial numbers uh, for other equipment are in the same um, serial number uh, uh, system, I guess if you will, uh, like say plate levelers, um, some dryers, that sort of thing. Uh, this doesn't count. Then there's a separate serial number range for those um, office presses, you know, those tabletop ones um, right. uh, without, without uh, gears or um, inking assemblies. Uh, the ones that begin with a zero, zero one, um, zero nine nine. Um, <clears throat> and I have a, about 100 of those listed in the census. Uh, at, well, it's, it's separate census. 
But um, Van, like I said, Van Cook made 30,000 presses. So um, there are 2,200 that I am aware of in the census. Um, there's some loose ends there. Um, there are some that are listed without a serial number uh, because I got that information secondhand. And so I, when I can, I try to uh, reconcile that to make sure I don't have um, duplicates. Um, now, there are, uh, there are other presses that are not listed um, because the, uh, I'm, because I'm either unaware of it or because like I said, the owners explicitly didn't want to be counted. That's happened in a couple of instances. Right. Um, now, and, and, but this is worldwide. So I have um, been in contact with people who've been in contact with me, um, around the world. Uh, and so I know what, what, that there are some presses in Israel, for example, uh, in South Africa and um, Brazil, um, I would say that um, in in uh, Asia, uh, which I know of a few, Japan and even in China, um, and South America are probably the two places where um, regions, continents, that um, I am less aware of how many may be there, and that might just be a language barrier. It's just also a networking thing. I mean, most people who can speak. English will find their way to, um, you know, one of the forums that are out there, such as, you know, Briar Press, for example, or Vanderblog, um, Let Press. Um, and so I might hear about them or they may contact me directly. But um, there may be more in, in, um, in South and Central America because a lot of letterpress equipment made its way from the U.S. there in the, um, in the 80s. Um, as, as the technology was um, uh, falling behind here, it was you know, exported to developing countries. Right, right, right. And that might, that might be true. And um, I know there's a lot of letterpress activity in India. Um, I don't know how many Vandercooks are there, um, but I do know that there are a lot of um, uh, platen presses there you know, in you know, small job shops. Wow, that's cool. Well, can you talk about why Vander Cooks are so popular now? Well, they have been popular uh, from the beginning uh, because they were so easy to use, uh, easy to set up. Um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, you were printing the first day that um, you stepped up to a Vander Cook, uh, you know, an operational one. Yeah. Um, uh, they're they're relatively safe. Um, you don't have to be an expert at setting type, uh, unlike a platen press where you have to have a, uh, a form that is very well um, configured, composed, um, and tight. Um, you know, and, and going into a uh, vertically mounted um, chase, uh, you know, like on a like on a C and P. You know, use horizontal. And so um, people can be a little more experimental in the bed. Um, uh, it's easier to use um, handmade papers and papers that are um, maybe irregular shape or not necessarily as – they're easier to feed in that sense. And you have the control on, on the, uh, with grippers and um, you have an inking assembly. And you're not printing the entire form at a time. You know, you're, it's a rolling point of contact. And so um, – it's easier to be, look good as a printer sooner with less experience 
on a Vandercook than it is on a platinum press. Yeah. One can argue. Um, uh, especially if you have, I mean, especially if you have uh, good rollers and um, the press is, you know, calibrated. Um, you, you know, uh, people who use photopolymer, they can look like they're experts pretty quickly if they, you know, with, good, with new rollers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It is. It has been very easy for us to learn. We have an SP fifteen that is listed on your census, um, and we also have a you know a Chandler and Price Platinum Press. But man, it is far more. It's been far more difficult for us to learn on that. For instance, with registration, you know, how do we consistently get uh, like a two color print uh, lined up so that every every actual piece right. of paper there's, is, is there's consistent. a lot of skill there. Yeah. However, it's also about um, the, the um, combination of materials. Now, uh, um, I, wasn't, I, I don't mean to say that photopolymer makes printing easy because in some ways it's harder because if your rollers are not in good shape, for example, um, and your press is not in good shape and you don't have fresh packing, your polymer is going to look pretty ugly. And maybe you don't have a standard base. You know, maybe you're using a wood base or something. Um, but metal type is more forgiving. So you could have uh, rollers in a, in a less than ideal condition on a platen press, um, or even, even on a, uh, proof press like a Vandercook, um, if you're using metal type, because, uh, uh polymer, everything has to be perfect. Right. Yeah. Well, what and, even it... then, and even then, uh, you're going to have some issues because it, the tolerance is so tight, it doesn't suffer things being slightly Oh, and the idea of polymer um, is to m- minimize your uh, make ready. And um, and Vandercook, when they were selling these presses, they were touting them as a minimal make ready system. And they were selling their own platen base that to be used with copper or uh, magnesium plates. Oh wow! I didn't know and, that they sold uh, their own bases. That's interesting. Yeah, they had a machine too that would make like a waffle iron, if you will. And, uh, well, actually, they didn't make the, there was this one called a, a Hammond uh, Easy Caster, and um, it was a machine that someone else made, but they were selling that as part of a system. And so you could make these um, honeycomb-style bases, and, uh, and then, of course, you could have a, um, the, a plate leveler that would um, make everything a uniform height. Because that's what Vandercook was all about was, was trying to reduce make ready and improve your um, efficiency and and quality of work. Uh, if you look at any of the trade uh, the um, catalogs, Vandercook catalogs, uh, the the, um, the models, if you will, were always wearing lab coats. <laughs> they were trying to sell you that this that this is um, precision equipment, right? Because in the begin in the beginning, you were uh, taking proofs. For the record, correcting typos, for example, and then you, and then they were making presses a little more sophisticated to test the quality of photo engravings, making sure that uh, the lines held. You know, you didn't have halftone dots that dropped out, or you didn't have heavy areas. And so it was all about um, getting things ready for the press. And so there was various terms: uh, pre-make ready, uh, and then a pre-press. So the term pre-press comes out of the out of this whole letterpress process. 
Well, that's funny about the lab coats. Uh, they totally. I, I've I've seen so many pictures on your on the website Vanderblog. Now it's registering in my mind that they are all wearing lab coats uh, while they're standing at the press. Right, and and so you know, a lab coat uh, means that this is a um, this is precision equipment, and it also means you're going to pay for it. Right. Yeah. You know, they weren't. Uh, they weren't trying to. Uh, oh, it wasn't until toward the end when they were trying to make um, less expensive presses, like the SP15, because the SP15 is not a test press; it is a repro press, and it was designed to um, to make a clean proof. But then you would take that proof, and then you would um, make a film negative, and then you would make a litho plate and print it on an offset press. And this was a stopgap measure uh, to um, so that uh, a company, a, pr- a printing plant, could take its um, they could they could take their uh, standing metal type and still um, print it in a faster, more efficient means. And then when that the information in those um, standing forms were outdated, then they could toss that metal. And, ho- and maybe at this point, the company could afford to buy the new technology, the phototype. And then that's why Vandercooks were then not worth much. And this is a roundabout way, getting back to your question about the popularity of Vandercooks. Um, when they weren't worth anything, and they were easier to use than CMPs and had larger beds, and you could use more of the bed. And so artists gravitated to that. That's sort of the um, the pop version of the history of Andrew Cooks as a book arts machine. And some of the, or the earliest practitioners uh, that most people know of are uh, to do that were Walter Hamity, the Perishable Press, and Claire Van Vliet at uh, Janus Press. And this is in the, um, the early 1960s. But before that, there's evidence of um, proof presses, Vander Cooks uh, and hacker presses being used to do fine press production. Uh, there's, there's some evidence of that in going back to the forties and the thirties. And I even seen a reference in a hacker ad, um, going back to 1915 where they had it. They, they mentioned an unnamed artist in an ad using their, their uh, presses. Wow. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Well, what is it like to travel mm-hmm. around the country and maybe even the world to work on Vandercooks? I imagine you see them in all conditions, shape, sizes, and locations as well. Oh, absolutely. And I, I, I enjoy that quite a bit because uh, my um, students and clients, because I'm doing um, service as well as instruction, and to me, they, they're the same. Um, if I'm just servicing a press, I'm hopefully I'm working with the operator or the owner and um, – you know, teaching them how to take care of the press in my absence. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's the same, but I I find the people to be generally to be, uh, very interesting, uh, talented. You know, I find that, um, I'm usually dealing with people who are better, uh, artists or even crafts people than, than I am. And, um, you know, Getting there is, is usually not fun, but being in a new location, and um, I, I usually find that they're interesting folks I like to hang out with afterwards. And so, you know, it's more often than not, I'm um, having dinner or beers with somebody. 
Wow, that's really neat. I imagine you get to know a whole lot of the letterpress community uh, traveling around and, and seeing all the vendor cooks out there. That's really, that's really interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, and many of these people I consider, you know, friends now. Um, so I, de- and I definitely uh, am one of those people who go on uh, busman holidays. And so um, uh, I always try to do a little sightseeing or um, get some local flavor for wherever I'm at. Yeah, well, so can you... And I'm also, the the community, too. I mean, I go somewhere, and it might be a smaller town, but there's already um, a community of people uh, working, uh, either separate or sometimes they're collaborating. Um, You know, places that you might not think of as as having, being a a hub of um, book arts activity. Um, Peoria, for example. I was there uh, a few years ago, I uh, did a workshop and there were people came in from the town and from uh, some outlying areas. There's also a university there, uh, Bradley University, where um, they have a, a small um, book art studio with um, a couple of different presses. I think there, if I remember right, there were like two Vandercooks and some platens, some tabletops, wood type and people, you know, students. But then I mentioned this um, uh, place I taught, Prairie Center for the Arts. Uh, had a couple of Vandercooks and, you know, they had book binding classes. Um, and there were, and that's just one example. I, I mean, there are other places, uh, uh, Tampa, St. Pete, Sarasota areas, uh, very interesting, but larger cities too, certainly, um, you know, I mentioned New York, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, uh, Minneapolis, Miami, uh, Detroit. Um, you know, there's lots of places where there's, there's um, very exciting things happening. Yeah, can you? So you know, we talked a lot about Vander Cooks even prior to our conversation on this podcast. Can you provide? Do you have any tips for people on finding and acquiring a Vander Cook these days? No. Well, uh, the first thing is to uh, you know have your cash liquid. You know that you can jump on it if there's something become available. But you want to do your homework on the press. if by any chance you have an opportunity to go and see it firsthand, that's a pretty good deal. Now, like with my class, people are armed with information now, what to look for in a press, like say, where on the under rails. And um, that might help you to make sure that you aren't going to buy a press that is really, really worn out. Um, and then you have to think about if you prepared to make that repair, have that repair made, doesn't mean you're going to be able to negotiate on the price, though, because these are scarce machines and a uh, um, another buyer, the, the seller, is not necessarily going to be motivated to lower the price. Uh, and um, there may be other buyers lined up. But, um, you know, caveat emptor, uh, you, 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 have to, you have to look at all the different um, – uh, places where a press may be listed, including eBay, because sometimes a press is going to be in eBay and it may not move for whatever reason. Uh, maybe the location is a little far for a lot of folks. Um, maybe the price is a little high, but then it might not sell, and so it might get relisted. So you need to kind of keep an eye out there. Uh, Briar Press, um, any of the online places where people talk about letterpress. And if you're in a community where there are other people, let everyone know you're looking for a press and maybe – uh, you can get a press at a better deal because uh, um, 
because you're part of that community because it's local and there's less for the seller to deal with, especially if you're going to come in and rig it and move it out yourself. Um, there are a few um, brokers of presses. I do a little bit of that uh, myself. I'll put a buyer and seller together. Um, Steve Robinson in Indiana is another one who um, who does that. Um, <clears throat> you know, Don Black up in um, uh, outside Toronto. He uh, is well known for selling presses. So um, just get on on people who who regularly do this and have equipment and um, are able to go and get it, fetch it for you. Um, let them all know you're interested. And they'll put you on their list. Um, but you also need to know what model that you want. Um, yeah. Can are you? Um, what kind of space do you have? Can it support it? Um, can you get it through the door? Um, <laughs> the bigger they are, the more expensive they are to move. But it's possible that the press, depending on its age and condition, you might be able to get at a bargain. Right. I mean, like if you were in the market for a press right now, we could um, turn um, the conversation to some presses I know that are available around the country, and I can advise you on um, on their condition and um, what it would what they need, and uh, um, is it possible to have something, uh, you know, fabricated or um, some or whether they just need a few off the shelf items. Yeah. Anyway, and they always are going to need new rollers and, uh, right. and, and certainly some TLC, you know, some elbow grease. <clears throat> yeah. Well, that, I think that's a good segue. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about sort of standard maintenance of Vandercook? Obviously, you know, you have a book <clears throat> dedicated to this, uh, that yeah. you're, you're, I think you mentioned, uh, is coming. The new version is being really soon. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am, uh, I am, Editing it um, this uh, winter uh, again, um, adding new information. So um, each this is my third edition, and um, the second um, had a substantial improvement, uh, more much more information in the first, and and this one as well. Uh, um, I I, um, I need to reprint them, but I have these four postcards. I'm looking at them now. That I am um, joked that um, really. Uh, uh, boils down my um, workshop. And uh, the first is um, maintenance is make ready. And so uh, before you plan to get on press, make sure that it is, you know, it is cleaned and oiled and calibrated. Uh, you know, the, the roller, you know, note the condition of the rollers and um, you know, change your packing um, so forth. <clears throat> and um, the second one is um, clean oil, measure, adjust. And that's an acronym for coma, because if you don't clean oil, measure, adjust, you might throw your press into a coma. And you can, some of these can seize up, like the SP-15, for example. Um, they can seize up pretty quickly if they're just not, you know, oiled at the eccentric on, um, on you know, be just above the hand crank and on the backside of the press as well. Um, you know, having, and having said that, um, <clears throat> your press should be... Uh, if at all possible, perpendicular to the wall, so you have some access to the backside of it to, to clean and to oil. And if something, you know, and be attuned to the noises. Uh, you know, if there's something that sounds uh, different, then you need to stop and investigate. And um, my um, <clears throat> my third postcard says, uh, anticipate failure. 
because these are old machines. Something is likely to go wrong. So be prepared for that. Have extra springs and screws and, uh, uh, you know, a toolbox um, at the ready dedicated to that machine. Um, and then lastly, my fourth postcard is um, just, you know, follow the linkage because uh, it, this is not higher math. It's um, if something is supposed to move and it doesn't, well, um, there is a starting point where you activate it like a lever and, uh, or a power switch. And um, somewhere along the line, something is, is failing. And so you should be able to follow the, the route of that, of those rods and springs and so forth. Yeah. So that's basically, you know, keep it, keep that press in a, in a decent um, location that is um, away from uh, you know, moisture, you know, humidity, if at all possible. Or, or take some measures to reduce that dehumidifiers or even like, you know, damp rid, um, that sort of thing. You know, keep it covered um, when you're not using it for a prolonged period of time. Keep the dust down. Other particulates, you know, especially in old buildings that multi-floor buildings, you know, stuff comes down or just, just general, um, you know, dirt and grime that's flying in the air. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know the, you mentioned the pay attention to the noises, especially that was something that got <laughs> us. We had our, um, and I, I, honestly, I went to your vendor blog and posted and you were kind enough to help me sort of sort out the issues that were wrong with it. And, um, but it was the, I think it was at the end of the ink drum. There's like a gear that was, it was plastic and it had broken. Uh, and it was just sort of mm -hmm, making mm -hmm. rocking noises each time and it did, nothing sounded right, you know. And um, once we sorted that out, NA Graphics has, you know, a fantastic replacement part that is not plastic. Uh, and then, of course, once we replaced that, then I broke the the belt, the, the timing belt that's used to connect to it. So we had to replace the belt. Uh, so now I've got like three mm -hmm. belts on hand. Uh, so you mentioned having right. uh, antis anticipating failure, I think, is a fantastic right. advice. Well, the, the belt, um, now that you have a new one on there, that probably should last you, uh, last you for, for um, decades. Uh, so maybe you'll be able to help um, uh, friends. Sometimes in a workshop, there'll be people who, that don't know each other, but then they find out they have the same model. And I usually make them wear a name tag with their name and model on it. And then they become friends. Right. And, and they can help each other because the idea is, you know, is, is to grow the the, um, the knowledge base and the community of people. And so like with the uh, forum there, I'm always encouraging other people to chime in uh, with their experience. And, um, you know, more often than not, it's me. Um, sometimes I try to wait and let someone else get first bite at it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's, a, but, it's really um, a fantastic resource, I think, for any vendor cook owner. <clears throat> well, I... Um, yeah, and I, I hope that it um, lasts, um, you know, many years. Um, at some point, I'm going to have to pass it on to somebody. Um, don't know who that will be at this point, but um, you know, I'm, these machines—they um, only had a um, anticipated life by the manufacturer about ten years, and that's because, um, you know, if they would hope that they'd be able to sell. Uh, the owner a new one and you know just like say with automobiles um so they certainly Vanderkoe never expected these presses to be around you know uh 40 50 you know 60 75 years later 
Wow. And um, now your press um, made in the um, somewhere in the 1960s. Um, you know, that's that's a pretty old machine, too. But with um, care, um, you'll be able to pass it on to somebody else when you're no longer um, uh, able or interested in printing. Yeah, that's the hope. I hope it's... Uh... And, ho- and hopefully <laughs> some of this information that I have collected will still be available somehow. Yeah, well, I think you've definitely done a good job of uh, of distributing that. And we personally are looking forward to your release of the third edition of your book. We're on your waiting list. And as I hope others who are listening uh, will join in for that. But hey, look, thank you so much for taking the time. This was a fantastic conversation. It was really fascinating to learn about Vander Cooks and also just about your history in, in book arts and uh, helping to educate us. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time. Can you provide some info on where people can find you online? Ah, well, um, the easiest place to find me online about Vandercook stuff is at uh, vandercookpress.info. And they can um, sign up uh, to post um, their own information. Now, um, it's a little convoluted process now. I have to manually approve everyone because I'm always fighting the bots. Um, So I have to make sure that you're a real um, person who prints. And, um, and then after I do that, then you can um, post your um, queries and comments um, at will. But, um, yeah, that's the best place to, um, to find me there. Okay, fantastic. But well, also, I want to I, you know, tell people that if they're interested in the history of printing and I want to connect with other people who are that, that they go to uh, printinghistory.org. And they can find the um, American Printing History Association website. And then we also have a presence on um, social media on Twitter and uh, Facebook. Fantastic. Yeah. And I will uh, include links to all of these on the show notes page. Well, Paul, thank oh, you okay, so much for taking the time. This was a fantastic conversation. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Letterpress Digest podcast. I hope you found it as enjoyable and educational as I did. I really learned a lot in this conversation with Paul. Uh, To find links to some of the references made throughout our conversation, you can visit the show notes page for this episode. That is at letterpressdigest.com forward slash one one number 11 that will redirect you redirect you to the um to the show notes page for this particular episode Uh, if you have questions or thoughts about the podcast i'm always open ears you can get in touch with me uh, through the website or social media thank you so much for listening and we will be back in two weeks 